hello and welcome to the Leaders in Clean Tech podcast. Each week, our host, David Hunt, speaks to a leading startup CEO, executive, or thought leader in the clean tech sector. Focused on the clean energy and clean mobility transitions, each guest shares the highs and lows of their clean tech journey, their industry insights, and their vision and hopes for the future. David Hunt, CEO and founder of Hyperion Executive Search and your host for the Leasing Clean Tech podcast. Uh, thank you for the feedback on the last few episodes. It's always great to hear your thoughts and uh, feedback. Uh, this week we return to the world of hydrogen, very hot topic at the moment. Um, more specifically, of course, green hydrogen. And I talk with uh, Dr. Graham Cooley, CEO of ITM Power, one of the best established manufacturers of hydrogen electrolyzers. I hope you enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to the Leaders in Clean Tech podcast, Graham. It's great to have you join me. Thanks, David. Yeah, great to be on uh, Leaders in Clean Tech. There's a, a lot to get through. It's been a pretty good year for those of uh, you involved in the green hydrogen sector. Lots of investment, lots of discussion, lots of government policies leading towards the growth of the uh, hydrogen economy. Um, so there's loads that I want to cover with you, but it's always customary to start with a little bit of your backstory. Perhaps if you could share a little bit of your journey prior to joining ITMSCO in, in 2009. Yeah, so, um, uh, well, I started um, by doing a physics degree and then did a material science PhD um, at Brunel University, actually in the mm -hmm. materials that go into fuel cells and electrolyzers, right. conducting uh, polymers. Um, I started at the CEGB in 1989, um, and then went through privatization and became part of National Power and was business development manager at National Power. Um, and. Uh, had a particular interest in energy storage technologies. Okay. So I, um, I developed a project called Regenesis, uh, which um, in the end we built 100 megawatt hours of a flow cell technology at Little Barford, which for a long time, actually for 20 years, was the world's largest um, electrochemical energy store. Um, and then I did a number of early stage technology companies raising venture capital. One was a telecoms components company. One was um, Metallasis, which was a spin-out of Cambridge University, actually looking at making tantalum for supercapacitors. Mm -hmm. and, and one was an industrial diagnostics company um, before starting at ITM in 2009. So I've been the CEO now for 12 years. And quite an eventful 12 years, I'm sure. And also, we'll pick up later on in terms of that um, entrepreneurial experience you had prior to, to joining uh, ITM, who clearly were already listed at that, that point. Um, I guess to start with what might be useful, Graham, you know, there's, there's quite a few sort of different electrolyzer technologies. Can you perhaps share with us a little bit about the ITM Power product, uh, its specific technology, and where you are at the moment and, as a company? Yeah, so we make PEM electrolyzers, that's polymer electrolyte membrane um, electrolyzers. Uh, actually, when I started 2009, we made both electrolyzers and fuel cells. Right. And I stopped the development of the fuel cell because it was my view that um, the uh, um, applications and the market for electrolyzers was larger than for fuel cells. And we concentrated solely on PEM electrolysis equipment mm -hmm. and that means now we've been working on PEM electrolyzers for 20 years the, the, the whole uh, uh, history of the company 
and the PEM electrolyzer has a solid uh, um, polymer electrolyte at the middle between the two electrodes. Mm -hmm. So there's a physical barrier. And, and the reason that that's uh, uh, important is it means you can generate clean hydrogen at high pressure, but most importantly, you can turn the electrolyzers on and off very rapidly. Um, and that means you can use them for grid balancing and energy storage. So there's, so since 2009, clearly the world has changed, or the whole energy you know, world has changed quite significantly. What, what have been the sort of the major, I guess, events or, or, or changes and, and sort of the, the growth of the business since you joined? So we, we um, uh, first thing uh, uh, that I tried to achieve was um, to get the, the factory ISO accredited, which we, mm -hmm. we did after the first year. And then in 2011, we launched our first product at Hanover, which is a, an important moment because yeah. we had for the first time a CE marked product that we could sell in, uh, um, in Europe. Right. Uh, so we launched that at Hanover and then we began a scale up process. We, we got some money from the UK government to build our first uh, refueling station, which was 100 megawatts in size. Um, and, and that's at the Advanced Manufacturing Park in Sheffield. And then we went on that scale-up journey. And uh, over the last decade, we've scaled up by a factor of a thousand. So three orders of magnitude. So um, this year, we, we finalized the delivery of 10 megawatts of electrolysis to the Rhineland refinery, to Shell. Right, um, and and that means we moved from ten kilowatts to ten megawatts in in uh, ten years. And in fact, we're now quoting hundred megawatt scale electrolyzers with our partner um, Linda, uh, Linda Engineering, yeah. our EPC partner. Um, and so that's the fourth order of magnitude in scale up. And certainly <clears throat> impressive rising in terms of capacity uh, to, to reflect that. How has the company changed uh, during that time? I've, I've not been, but I've only seen sort of uh, some visuals uh, which we'll share on the, uh, on the episode page of the uh, facility at uh, Sheffield. But uh, perhaps again, share us a little bit of the, how the company has changed and how you've, um, well, how the company has changed and some of the challenges and opportunities that you faced personally during that scale up. Yeah, so I, I think our technology development has been very successful. And not only did we get technology, the technology compliant right from the beginning, but we made it modular so that we could do the scale up. Right. Uh, the key right. challenge, of course, uh, is um, the challenge of uh, a transitioning technology to be a real product that's manufacturable. Mm -hmm. And, and we, that's the other very, very important important process that we've been through. And um, uh, first Monday, actually, of 2021, the company moved into the world's largest electrolyzer factory. So it's our new gigafactory in Sheffield. It's just off the M1. As a, uh, it's 134,000 square feet. And as a manufacturing capacity of one gigawatt or 1,000 megawatts per annum, well, um, and, and, and that's really very, very important because the market's moving very quickly and yeah. all of the targets that have been announced, national targets that have been announced for electrolysis equipment are at the gigawatt scale. Mm -hmm. And actually, you can't take a gigawatt order 
if you don't have somewhere to manufacture a gigawatt of electrolysis. Yeah. And, and so um, we, we spent now uh, two and a half years designing the process to be able to manufacture at the gigawatt level. We moved into the factory and we're now shipping from that factory. So that's been a very, very important transition for the company. Yeah. Um, and um, we've also implemented um, some automation. I say some automation, we're only semi-automated right now. But um, we, we've moved from uh, many of the very simple processes, uh, picking components, cleaning components, and so on. And yeah. we've automated those processes. Um, and as more automation comes online, then the capacity of the factory will, will increase even further. And we think we can get somewhere between 1.2 and 1.5 gigawatts of capacity out of the existing factory. Right. So that's an ongoing drive, a continuous improvement drive. Yeah, yeah. Like I say, a very impressive facility. I was watching something on, online uh, recently where you were introducing walking people through. So, we'll, as I say, we'll put a link to that onto the episode page so people can see a little bit of the scale because it is massively impressive to see. Again, we band around gigafactories clearly with on the back of uh, Elon Musk and Tesla and, and batteries, but uh, it's great to see that uh, there is that scale um, developing for for electrolyzers and uh, how you've achieved that. One thing that also during the time, so I understand because I've met. With with some of your colleagues uh, at various events in Germany and that it is that you do have an international presence as well. At what point did you, or did that already exist when you joined? Or at what point did you decide that it was good to have a, an overseas entity and uh, profile as well? So we, we uh, our first um, international project actually was um, a power to gas project in Germany with the Tuga Group. Mm -hmm. And the Tuga Group is the largest grouping of, of power and gas utilities um, and stat workers, as they're referred to in Germany. Yeah. And, and, and that grouping funded a 100 megawatt electrolyzer uh, uh, project. Um, actually, ultimately, we deployed a 250 mega, uh, um, kilowatt, uh, uh, half, a quarter of a megawatt. Um, uh, in the middle of Frankfurt, actually it was in the Schielerstrasse in Frankfurt, mm -hmm. and we bid that electrolyzer into primary grid balancing. So we used it as a flexible load that you could turn on and off very rapidly. Yeah. And we were injecting the hydrogen directly into the gas grid in the center of Frankfurt. So it was a genuine power to gas energy storage and around that time, we set up ITM GmbH. Um, and, and that German company then did some other projects as well, including the RWE uh, first electrolyzer project. We then did the Shell refinery project. We did a project with ZIAG. And we've now announced um, our largest project to date, which is again with Shell at the Rhineland refinery, which is 100 megawatts in size. Right. So in terms of internationalizing, um, our first uh, 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 subsidiary company was in Germany. We then set up a company in the US, ITM Inc., and also one in Australia, ITM ETY. Okay. And we have a strong presence also um, in France. So uh, we, we, we took an international approach from very early on, and of course now, um, we have a strategic investment from Linda, 
yeah. uh, from SNAM. So at Linda in Germany, at SNAM in Italy, and we work very closely with Shell, of course, who are headquartered in The Hague in the Netherlands. So yeah, I, I would say internationalizing has been a very important part of our development. Yeah, and I know from experience that setting up a GmbH is somewhat more difficult than setting up an Inc. in the U.S., having done both recently. Um, but, um, yeah, the the German market, of course, is really interesting in terms of, you know, as you said, the Stadtwerker, of which there are, I guess, technically about a 1,000 or, or, or so. So the sort of the, the energy, uh, I guess, makeup or the utility makeup is slightly different. But also my understanding is that uh, uh, the regulations and rules allow for a greater capacity of a hydrogen to be directly injected into the grid. Is that still the case or is that ever the case? Yeah. So in, in, um, in Germany, you can put 10% hydrogen into the gas grid. Um, the, the work we're doing with Caden and Northern Gas Networks in the Hydrofloid project mm -hmm. is, is actually looking at a 20% blend. And we put 20% into the gas grid in Kiel. And Caden and Northern Gas Networks are continuing now to do those trials on the open gas grid in, in the UK. But today in Germany, you can put 10% hydrogen into the gas grid. I mean, there has been some interesting developments in Germany. I think uh, uh, you'll see that very recently um, the German renewable energy law allowed electrolyzers to connect to the electricity grid mm -hmm. without the connection charges that used to be imposed. Okay. And, and this is very important for reducing the cost. Yeah, of, yeah. Uh, no, absolutely, to, to facilitate. Uh, so, uh, um, and also the German government announced, um, actually now it's about 18 months ago, but it announced one of the first schemes for contracts for difference auctions for green hydrogen to replace grey hydrogen or indeed natural gas in the gas grid. So right. Germany's a very interesting place, uh, an early adoption market for electrolysis equipment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, it's certainly an area so where we've we've traditionally always had a, a great deal of presence and profile, and, and the office now in Munich. But uh, yeah, there 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 has always been. In fact, it's what drew me to the clean tech sector in, in myself initially way back in two thousand six, uh, was looking at the uh, the market in Germany and how uh, they were, I guess, through the energy vend leading in in many ways, and uh, clearly not been a smooth path necessarily. But I think in many ways they do do still continue to to lead. Um, one thing that I just wanted to pick up on uh, from what you were saying there, Graham, in terms of obviously some strategic partners that you have um, and the growth, clearly the substantial growth that you've enjoyed over the last uh, 10 or plus years. And I just wondered, you know, we've got a lot of clients who are VCLP backed and, and a number of uh, presently that are going through sort of the IPO process. There's a lot of ways to obviously fund and, and, and push a company. Um, I'm just wondering, because you've got experience both as a founder entrepreneur and now obviously as a CEO of a listed company, what, what you see as some of the advantages and disadvantages of leading a, a listed company? Yeah, I mean, when you're listed on the stock market, um, uh, you publish audited accounts every year. Um, actually, you, you publish um, audited interims and then yeah. uh, final accounts. And, and what that means then is it's much more straightforward for funds to invest in you and you can raise money. Um, it, it's much more straightforward than doing a VC funding round. Yeah. With a venture capital funding round, you also normally end up with more than one class of share. So you yeah. end up with, rather than just having investments in ordinary shares, you have preference shares which have 
liquidation preferences and voting right preferences and so on. So, um, I, you know, being listed on the stock market in terms of having access to the capital markets and having yeah. access to, uh, uh, to to capital is a very, very important part of the development of companies. And um, uh, so, uh, yeah, the, the journey is more straightforward. Having said that, you need to put forward to the market some very robust plans and you need yeah. to stick to them. Um, and and um, the, the stock market is a very, very dynamic place. And uh, I, I think that you are being able to very uh, succinctly articulate your proposition and be able to explain to fund managers exactly what the market, your market entry strategy is and your development strategy is really key. Yeah, obviously, apart from the obvious governance things, I think that's an important factor because a lot of the clients that I've worked with and worked with over the years who've gone through vast you know, and massive scaling seem to spend you know, 50 to 70% of the time constantly fundraising and they're always looking at the next round, which uh, um, is important, of course, for, for growth, but uh, it can be a huge distraction from you know, the core responsibilities of a CEO leading a business. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. I mean, I, the, the last funding round that we did, we, we raised 172 million. Uh, we did that in October of last year, and we were two and a half times oversubscribed. And, and I was actually really pleasantly surprised at how knowledgeable the capital markets are now about hydrogen. Right. So uh, about the uh, knowledgeable about the energy transition, knowledgeable about energy storage and renewable power and how you use green hydrogen turning electrons into molecules to make them storable and power to x and the whole transition from fossil fuels to clean fuels are really very very knowledgeable uh, uh, um, fund managers in a way that they certainly weren't two years ago yeah yeah no, I've certainly found that again, going back to you know, my, my own experiences in the solar market sort of 12, 13 years ago, practically no bank or financial institution had any understanding or inkling of wanting to get involved. And I think uh, now I should say there's a lot of very sophisticated investors who really do understand the bigger picture of, uh, of, of the sort of disruptive technologies that we're talking about. So let's touch on something which which I think is important. We, we did when we spoke very briefly before, and that's that element of tribalism that exists within the uh, supposedly allies of the, the sort of the clean energy revolution. Uh, you, you obviously have staunch advocates of green electrons and those of green molecules and, and green hydrogen, um, whereas it seems fairly obvious to, to, to me that it should be a case of which technology best suits which application. Um, wh where do you see the areas where hydrogen is best suited to make those big climate impact? Yeah, so, um, uh, first thing to say is that green hydrogen is the only net zero energy gas. Um, so, if you, if you make hydrogen by splitting water using an electrolyzer and you use renewable power, then you're able to store that renewable power um, and convert the electrons to molecules. And as you know, molecules are easy to store and electrons are incredibly difficult to store. But you, what you make then is a net zero um, energy gas. You're also, hydrogen is the only fuel with no carbon in its whole supply chain. But also, if you make green hydrogen by splitting water, you also make oxygen. And, and so green hydrogen is also 
the only fuel that, that does not deplete atmospheric oxygen. So, so it, it has those two very important principles. Mm -hmm. um, the entry market for green hydrogen is replacing the existing supply of hydrogen, which is we use 70 million tons per year worldwide in industry of hydrogen today. And, and that goes mainly into uh, production of ammonia, into refineries, production of methanol, Yep. and some in the areas of metals treatment. Although there, there is a much larger market for hydrogen um, in the steel industry and the metals industry. So yeah. they, they are, that's the existing market. Now, if you look at that market, it, you, that market has 29 years. It's got until um, 2050 to decarbonize. And today, all of that hydrogen is made by reforming natural gas. So steam methane reforming, which is very carbonizing, yep. making the hydrogen that goes into those industrial places. 70 million tons per year is equivalent to about 600 gigawatts of electrolysis. So a very large market. Yeah, um, and that's the, en that's the entry market. There's no market to create. Mm -hmm. You don't have to change the legislation about putting hydrogen in pipes or nobody has to buy a bus, a car or a truck. And, and those other two markets, by the way, are incredibly important markets for hydrogen. But today, the existing market is our focus. Yeah. Um, and we work closely with Linda Engineering because, of course, they're in that market already. They work in refineries and, and production of ammonia and methanol already. Mm. So it's a key early entry market for decarbonization. Now, what, one other point is that refineries are included in the Renewable Energy Directive. So all refineries have to make 14% of their product renewably in the next decade. And the most straightforward way of doing that is replacing the grey hydrogen with green hydrogen. And so that, that not only is our focus uh, industrial hydrogen and replacing grey with green, but very specifically working in refineries. And that's why the 100 megawatt announcement from Shell mm. about working with ITM to, to, to um, install a 100 megawatt electrolyzer at the Rhineland refinery is really fantastic news for us because, of course, it's a very important reference plant yeah. in the early adoption market. Yeah, I was going to touch on that. I think you made a really important point because I, as I understand that, you know, practically, well, certainly 98% or so of, of industrial hydrogen presently does is derived from fossil fuels and, and not necessarily without carbon capture. So there's, there is a massive issue there. So I, I guess, and you touched on a few legislative drivers there, which are really important, but um, clearly that both the challenge and therefore the opportunity that exists for ITM and other sort of others within the green hydrogen space is, is enormous. But, you know, it, how do we start with such a massive task? Yeah, I mean, you, you always start any massive task by just getting started and building things. Um, and, and um, you know, I mean, what we what the industry really needs now is some uh, policy for incentivizing the adoption of green hydrogen in industry. Uh, and it needs to be a stable policy that lasts long enough that it will encourage private investment. 
and you know what's very important when you um, when you put incentives in place is that they're smart incentives. They are those incentives that drive volume to reduce costs, so that ultimately you don't need the incentive anymore. And and I believe that green hydrogen will be significantly lower cost than grey hydrogen in a decade. And it needs that early stimulus. Yeah. And contracts for difference auctions are the best way of doing it. I mean, if you just think about the task of decarbonisation and, and using um, electrolysis to decarbonise, for instance, the natural gas industry, which is the origin of the grey hydrogen industry. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, there is a huge, uh, um, there are huge economies of scale in fossil fuels. There is a massive amount of sunk capital. And so yeah. it's obvious that we wouldn't be able to compete on price immediately. But you only need incentives for a short period of time. So um, if you look at Bloomberg New Energy Finance and if you look at the McKinsey model for um, costing green hydrogen, you'll see that the prediction is mid 2020s to 2030, green hydrogen, first of all, is lower cost than blue hydrogen and competitive cost to grey hydrogen and, and will be somewhere around $1.6 per kilogram in 2030, which is approaching the cost of natural gas in Europe. Mm. By 2050, they're saying $0.8 a kilogram which is equivalent to natural gas at $6 per MMBTU, which is a, a, a phenomenal place for green hydrogen to have gotten to yeah. uh, um, a, a, in a decade. But to get there, we need uh, policy stability and we need contracts for difference auctions to incentivize the volumes. Again, very clear points. Again, we've seen with solar what the uh, sort of stimulus initially can can do in terms of reducing the cost curves and becoming very cost competitive once that traction or once that uh, scaling is underway. Um, you've touched on the kind of answer to the question in advance, if you like, with CFDs, but I was just wondering if there are you know, policy mechanisms that you are seeing both in the UK, across the EU. Uh, I, I don't know what the landscape is like in uh, in the US. Clearly, you, you have some profile and presence there. Um, is there a consistency or, or some level of consistency, do you think, uh, across landscapes in terms of how we can uh, transition green hydrogen to, to, to the cost points you've talked about there? So, I, um, in the EU, first of all, the announcement from the EU of their contracts for difference auctions was a pretty significant one, yeah. $100 billion. Um, over the next decade for CFDs for green hydrogen. Actually, the first announced uh, contracts for difference auction for green hydrogen was the German government, which, which was a few months earlier than the EU announcement. Um, and, and um, of course, the uh, uh, UK government is, is working on the development of its hydrogen strategy, which is soon to be published, will also include some incentives for green hydrogen, including CFDs, and also including the RTFO for um, uh, renewable transport fuels mm -hmm. certificates. So I, I think there are, there are a number of mechanisms. Uh, is there a, a unified approach across the world to this? No, there isn't. I, I think the early CFDs that are designed in Europe 
will be the ones that will be either replicated or, or used as a, as a good model yeah. uh, for doing others. But I think it's certainly important that there's a, 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 a solid revenue model to incentivize investment. I mean, the, the cost of green hydrogen is dominated by the cost of the renewable power and its low factor. And moving to a power purchase agreement route, Mm-hmm. so that you uh, can have load factors of 100% and buy the renewable power that goes into the electrolyzer via a power purchase agreement, I think is very important. And then incentivizing the gap between green hydrogen and the cost of grey hydrogen in the early days uh, is really going to drive volume. And I think that's, uh, 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 that's very important. The, the yeah. other point to make is that many... CFDs for offshore wind um, are now eliminating the negative price protection for the renewable power um, company, so the deployer of the renewable power. So a solution is needed by the renewable energy companies to actually what they can do at times where the grid is is projecting on them a negative or zero price. And actually joining that logic up and having a green hydrogen CFD that's compatible with that means that you never waste any renewable power. You can always make molecules with it and supply that green power to industry as green molecules. Yeah, I think, I should say, there's so much to be done, um, but equally there, there, there are those drivers, both market-driven and, and, of course, policy still very much required. I just wonder if there's an element of distraction Graham, because again, I know you're very active on LinkedIn, as many of us are. You know, the, it, a lot of this boils down, unfortunately, to sort of arguments we touched on before, sort of between a, you know a Tesla and a Mirage, and, and that kind of silly conversation. Whereas there are such massive opportunities and, and, and such areas where big impact is being made, and it seems sometimes a little bit. I don't know whether it's just a media thing where things come down to you know should you heat your home with hydrogen or should you drive a hydrogen car, and it, it seems distracting. Do you see that that's only at that superficial social media kind of level, or do you see it's a distraction in government or in in more important places? Yeah, I wouldn't call it a distraction. I think anyone who really knows the energy industry knows that the um, uh, entry market for electrolysis um, is uh, replacing industrial hydrogen with hydrogen. There are some very, very important other markets and the two you touched on tend to be the ones that um, uh, that um, uh, you know the general public uh, sees because it touches their lives yeah so everybody's got a boiler and everyone's got a car and so consequently when they think of hydrogen they think about driving around using a hydrogen car or heating their home using hydrogen uh, and and not thinking about hydrogen at an industrial level. So when you think about heating homes, for instance, you can put 20% hydrogen into the gas grid and the end user won't even know. Yeah. So uh, you and, and getting to 20% decarbonisation of the gas grid is a very significant move forwards. Mm. I mean, the amount of energy is incredible. We, we, we use around 800 terawatt hours of um, energy in the gas grid. The, the gas grid actually on average is three times the size of the power grid. And in the winter, five and a half times the yeah, size yeah. of the power grid. 
So it's an astonishing amount of energy to replace 20% of it uh, with green hydrogen. Yeah. At the vehicle discussion, um, I, I think, um, uh, you know, our interest in refueling vehicles is certainly focused now on heavy vehicles. Yep. Those vehicles that always go back to the same place to refuel, like buses, trucks and trains. And, and the reason for that is that you can have a, an anchor customer for the hydrogen at a refueling station. And so you can make a commercial case for deploying a refueling station because you've got a customer always coming back to the same yep. place to refuel, whether it's a fleet of buses or a fleet of trucks or vans. And that means that you can deploy a refueling station on a commercial basis. And, and, and that means that there's a, a, a route uh, to private investment, uh, a, a commercial market, which will then lead to growth. Mm -hmm. So that would, that's our emphasis. Um, and the debate about whether it's um, a plug-in electric vehicle or whether it's a, a um, hydrogen uh, vehicle for a straight passenger vehicle uh, will play out over time. But the first rollout, um, in my view, uh, will be those vehicles that go back, those commercial vehicles that go back to the same place to refuel. Yeah, the heavy stuff. I don't know if you did catch it. One of the earlier episodes, nearly a year ago now, was with Zero Avia, looking at uh, hydrogen flight, um, uh, hydrogen through to fuel cells through to flight, which I think is interesting. So those really heavy and long, long sort of uh, durations. I think it's uh, interesting to see what part that can be played there. It's, it's been really good to get your insights, Graham, in terms of how the, the market is and the scope and size of the, both the challenges and the opportunities ahead. How does that, as a CEO of business, uh, of ITM, look for you i mean a little bit of a dive into the crystal ball to see what you think would be the next sort of uh, four to five years for you as a business and more broadly for the green hydrogen sector yeah i mean um, the last 12 years have been incredibly exciting at itm power it's been uh, uh, you know to me it's almost been the dream job really it's got uh, the technology element to it market access element uh, um, strategy politics all, all of those good things but I, I really feel like I'm making a difference yeah. by working at ITM Power. And, and, you know, for me, I wouldn't be able to do a job if I didn't feel like the end product was going to help the world get to a, a better place than it yeah. is today. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's been a fantastic journey. Uh, I think the journey of green hydrogen is only just beginning. I think it will be an incredibly important part of the energy transition. And I would say over the next five years, you'll see by far the fastest growth in ITM power than you've seen in the past. Certainly lots to, uh, to to look forward to, given the, what the last 10 years has looked like, as you say. But I think, it, again, it's there's, there's so much, I think, money available now for whatever, whether that's VCP or, or, or through the public markets that are hopefully primed to support technologies that are truly making a decarbonisation impact. And I think clearly that, that help money certainly decreases the wheels of growth, uh, as we well know. Um, so really looking forward to seeing your continued expansion. As I say, we'll put on the podcast on the podcast web, web page uh, a link to uh, to uh, all of the usual social media channels, but particularly to that uh, look at the, uh, the Gigafactory in Sheffield. Before we conclude, it's always, from my point of view, interesting to see what inspires people or what has motivated or, or started people on the 
the journey that they're on, this decarbonisation journey. So are there any particular books, thought leaders, people, instances that have inspired you in your journey so far, Graham? Yeah, a difficult question, that one, uh, David. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I guess um, I ended up in physics and um, engineering because of my uh, mother and father. So my mother was a physics teacher and my, my father was an engineer. Uh, I had a brother who died, actually, a brother who died of multiple sclerosis and um, actually a uh, very, very difficult illness to watch somebody die like that. Yeah. And it, it really focused me on working hard. Actually, I think if there's one thing that focused me on trying to achieve something in life, it was seeing somebody not being able to do that for themselves. Right. Um, my, my first job, actually, at the CEGB, there was a gentleman called Stuart Mayle, um, who actually uh, died of a heart attack a, a few years ago now. But he was my mentor. And actually, uh, you know, Regenesis, and I worked with him on superconductivity and a load of other uh, interesting technologies. And, and I suppose what he taught me uh, was that the important thing in technology development is to build things. You, know, you can't do it in theory or on paper. Right. You actually have to put bits of kit together, put them in the field and work them uh, to really, really make technology development work. And he was a great mentor for me. Stuart Mayle uh, was his name. And then I guess the, the, the other important thing was um, uh, my daughter was born. She's um, uh, nearly 15 now. And, and her and all of her friends are really concerned about the environment. And I yeah. think it's only when you have children that you realize that we've really got to do something uh, about the environment. Uh, we can't leave them with an awful legacy. Yeah. No, absolutely. As, as a parent of three uh, of differing ages, you absolutely do. It does bring home to you the importance uh, or the potential of the impact that you do through your career. So thanks for sharing those thoughts. Again, I think it's really important that uh, we recognise that we are all humans and it's uh, a variety of factors that get us to the places that we are and, and those that we love and support us and that, that, that influence our lives, um, both from a family's perspective. And uh, likewise, actually, it's quite funny. One of my early mentors was, was way back when I was about 19 and, and in some ways not particularly substantial because it wasn't in clean energy at the time but just an individual who uh, was impactful on my life so it's uh, it's great to sort of reflect on those individuals sort of taking you on the journey that you find yourself on now but listen it's been really great to spend some time with you Graham thanks for sharing your thoughts and thanks for uh, uh, joining us on the podcast as I say we'll put various links on the episode page for people to uh, to share and see a little bit more about what you guys are up to but uh, long may it continue thanks very much and, and I say hopefully uh, we'll see more and more of uh, ITM and the green hydrogen markets uh, over the next five years as you suggest yeah thanks very much david and uh, i enjoyed the interview thanks for having me thank you for listening and especially to those who subscribe to the podcast uh, very much appreciated that you do uh, we're now ranked in the top 2.5 percent of podcasts globally according to listennotes.com which is uh, phenomenal so thank you to everybody who's supported us on the journey so far but of course we're keen to share the clean tech stories further and wider and i'd really appreciate if you can share episodes within your own social media communities uh, and if possible take a few minutes out to write a review on apple podcasts or your your platform of choice really helps and uh, we're really keen to obviously take our message to a bigger and broader audience but uh, for those that you have been with us 
a while. Thank you for those that are new. Thanks for joining. And uh, we'll see you on the next episode. <laughs>